My heart went out to her. She sat with her shoulders bowed and her head hanging, and the tears just streamed down her face. I'm so sorry about this, she said. I don't mean to cry. And she tried not to sniff. I handed her the box of tissues, and she gratefully wadded up several in her hand and dabbed at her face. And the tears continued to flow. I mentally ticked the first box on the checklist in my head, the one entitled Effective Therapy. We'd passed the first hurdle. She felt safe. Check. Safety. She tugged at my heartstrings, such a beautiful soul, and there was more to be told. I opened my heart and the separation between us vanished. Her feelings became my feelings, her tearing grief and numbing despair, her conviction that she was a total failure and not worthy, and only worthy of the violence and abuse that was being rained down on her by poorly intentioned people making immature decisions. And so I became an anchor of hope in a sea of desperation, and she raised her eyes to mine. This is doable, I said. I know the path to healing. I've travelled it and I've helped others. I can help you if you let me. And she looked at me numbly. This had been her life for so long. She hardly believed that a different life was possible. But she was courageous enough to try. Hi folks, I'm Anne-Marie, the Soulful Therapist. There are natural, gentle ways to heal, discover yourself and find meaning in the world. Let me introduce you to them. I'm a psychotherapist, past life therapist, clinical hypnotherapist, master knitter, Reiki master, teacher, author and seer. I specialise in trauma, helping young people and spiritual development. The people who find me are smart and sensitive, often highly skilled in their areas of expertise, and this includes parenting and loving other people, and they're not average. They're people of compassion and creativity. They're quirky and intelligent, and they all have one thing in common. They've woken up. Curiosity, crisis, or sometimes a miracle have woken them up to the possibility that this is not all there is. And the questions that they dance speak aloud and are terrified to answer are, what's it all for? And why am I here? And to each and every one of you I say, let's assume you have a soul. Let's assume that there's something more than what you can see. Let's assume that life is not a biochemical accident, that your life is not a mistake, but is in fact deeply purposeful. Shall we begin? Life is a quest for meaning, and stories are a conduit for learning. In 1944, Viktor Frankl and his wife were transported to the Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz. A protege of Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler, he studied medicine at the University of Vienna and specialised in neurology and psychiatry. As a medical student, he set up a free counselling service for other students, and as a result, not one single Viennese student committed suicide in 1931. From 1933 to 1937, he treated more than 3,000 women with suicidal tendencies. 
His life was dedicated to the healing of others and he made a difference. But on the 19th of October 1944, Viktor Frankl stood in a line of men separated from his wife. His backpack weighed down by a precious manuscript. It held all of his life's work waiting to be processed and everything was about to be taken away. With a flick of the finger to the left, 90% of the people entered the door to the building signposted baths with a bar of soap in hand and were never seen again. Viktor Frankl was one of the 10% who survived the initial processing. He describes life in the camps as a hard fight for existence, an unrelenting struggle for life itself, for one's own sake or for that of a good friend. So not surprisingly, people died. The conditions were gruelling. There were limited food, beatings, punishments, extreme weather conditions, inadequate clothing and medical care, poor housing and hard labour. Some people suicided, while others just turned their faces to the wall, gave up the will to live and died. More surprisingly, and against all odds, some people lived. Viktor Frankl describes life in the camps as a provisional existence of an unknown limit and how people who cannot see an endpoint are unable to create goals for the future or even think about the future. The whole structure of their inner life changed. No future, no goal. And something else happened too. People looked to the past for reassurance and disconnected from the reality of day to day. Of course, it made the present, with all of its horror, less real. It made the present, with all of its horrors, less real. And there lay the danger. When people denied the reality of their current existence, they simply didn't see the opportunities to rise above and create something positive. Opportunities that really did exist. When they regarded their provisional existence as unreal, it made life pointless. They became convinced that it didn't matter what they did and fell victim to the camp's degenerating influences. They forgot that adversity was an opportunity to grow beyond themselves, an accomplishment they would never have achieved in normal circumstances. They didn't see the opportunity or the challenge. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel wrote, one could make a victory of these experiences, turning life into an inner triumph, or one could ignore the challenge and simply vegetate, as a majority of prisoners did. So why are we talking about this? Because it's important. We're talking about it because people are living provisional existences today. It's with us now. It's a condition of our times. People who are long-term unemployed, people who have suffered trauma and abuse, women and children who are victims of domestic violence, people with drug and alcohol problems, people with disabilities and chronic health problems, and those who are coming to the end of their life. These are provisional existences. It's real. It's now. If we look around, it's not too hard to find people who are ignoring challenges and opportunities people with no goals and no thought for the future, preferring to vegetate and self-medicate is so sad. 
and such a waste. But happily, more and more we can also spot the people who have risen above their circumstances. People of high character who aren't faking it for monetary gain. People that when you ask them, how are you? tell you serenely that if they could choose to delete the awful experiences they've gone through, that they wouldn't. Sounds crazy, they say, but you know, if I could take it back, I wouldn't. I've grown so much. I'm wiser and stronger. I'm so much better off. These are the people that have come to terms with it, made sense of their experiences and discovered meaning. The journey to healing violence, trauma and abuse can be a long one, but at the end of the road, when people have fully integrated the experience, this is what I hear. So two years after I first worked with the beautiful soul that you met at the beginning of the episode, she was sitting across from me again in my clinic. But this time she was completely different. She was no longer despairing and overwhelmed and seeking an end to pain. She was actually looking to the future. She hasn't quite yet arrived at her destination where she's opened the door to the life beyond, but she is making the most of what life has to teach. A long time ago, in a country far, far away. Well, actually it was up the track and don't stop until you hit the bull dust. Alice Springs was hot and dusty and wild and majestic. But mostly, it was magical. I hadn't been living there very long when I realised I was no longer living in my Australia anymore. I was living in Aboriginal Australia. I was a young, professional white woman, but Aboriginal customs now determined how I was to behave, to be respected, and to be respectful. It was unexpected, and it was fascinating to me. My client was young and strong, blessed with good looks, and man, was he such a talented musician. The last thing I expected when he sat down for his appointment was what came flying out of his mouth, quite calmly and peacefully. I couldn't believe my ears. Uh, sorry, I said. I'm not sure I heard you right. I've decided to die, he repeated. I stopped eating two weeks ago. I didn't do it on purpose, but it just all seemed like too much trouble. Life, all this. Seems quite pointless, you know, and I'm not afraid to die. My people are up there in the Milky Way. And when I die, I'll go up to join them. I'll be with family. It's going to be such a relief to get home. Oh, man, Blind Freddy could see that there was no way I was going to be able to leverage a fear of death to get him to pause and think about what he was doing. He had no fear of death. He was a proud Aboriginal man, unfettered by the Christian belief of one life. He knew life went on. His relationship with his country and the guardians of the land was a daily, open-hearted conversation for him. And then it struck me. So if you've made your decision and you're comfortable with it, why are you here? He didn't have to be in my office. If he wanted to die, all he had to do was walk into the desert without taking water with him. We were all so careful. The desert was brutal, especially in summer. In the days before mobile phones, if your car broke down 20 minutes from town and you had no water, you died. We all knew the stories. Why are you here? 
Well, I'm just double checking that I've made the right decision. I think I have, but I thought I'd check with you. Mm. Okay, so let's work this through. What brings you joy? What are you bringing to the world right now? Nope, nothing. It used to be music, but not anymore. Nothing. Oh, jeepers, we're really in trouble now. What did I have that would outweigh the impulse to end it all? What did I know about how different cultures viewed life and death? Luckily, inspiration came to my rescue. Okay, I know it's not part of your culture, but I'd like you to consider something. Let's assume that you're here on Earth to learn something. That your life is deeply purposeful. What do you think you've learned? Yeah, nothing. Pretty sure I've learned nothing. Okay, next step. So let's assume you get more than one life to learn these lessons. And if you leave early, you come back to complete the lesson. Let's assume you can't skip class. His bronzed skin turned gray right in front of my eyes. Oh no, he said. I can't hack being a baby again. That totally sucks. I better stick around and work out what these lessons are. There are people you never forget. He's one of them. When people see no end to a provisional existence, when they fail to recognise their free will to think and act and feel, when life becomes pointless, then suicide becomes a logical choice. Today we call it suicide logic. Despair changes the structure of the brain. The primary motive of the human psyche is to preserve life. Our personality, our ego, is deeply protective of us. This is preservation logic. But when people give up, suicide logic drives them towards an alternative goal. The elimination of despair becomes the elimination of life itself. So we can ask the question, and I have, how do people survive some pretty shitty experiences? To so many people, life is not kind. How do they ignite the will to live? How do they keep it alive? The people that survived the concentration camps reached beyond their despair and changed their attitude to life. Instead of asking what the meaning of life was, they began to think of themselves as people who were being questioned by life and adopted the belief that they were required by life to take right action with right conduct. While their external circumstances were unbearable in so many ways, they still had the freedom to choose how they'd be in the world to hold tight to their integrity and a dream of the future. Viktor Frankl proposed that we can find purpose in a life of enjoyment and be fulfilled experiencing beauty, nature and art. 
We can find purpose in an active life of creativity that expresses our values. And we can also find purpose in a life barren of both enjoyment and creativity. A life of suffering grants us the opportunity to demonstrate our character. And in my experience, it comes down to one simple question. What are you learning? Please take very good care of yourself. If you've been disturbed by our conversation today, please reach out to your local GP or local mental health crisis service. In Australia, we have Lifeline, on the phone or online. And if you're thinking about suicide, seek help immediately by calling 13 11 14. I love getting questions and I need more of them. You can record your questions on your smartphone and email them to me at Anne at annemariemcglasson.com. I'll do my best to answer questions every week. So I've seen hypnotist stage shows where people are made to do anything. I wouldn't like that, but I think that hypnotherapy could really help for me. So my question is, how much control does a hypnotherapist have? Can they make people do things that they don't want to? Thank you so much for your question. This is a common worry when people are thinking about hypnotherapy. The hypnotist stage shows are just that. They're shows. It's entertainment. And what the hypnotist does is they actually pre-select the people that are to be on the stage. They'll usually do a, a bit of a, an exclusion safety activity to begin with where they'll say to people in the audience if you're pregnant sit down if you've got heart problems sit down uh, if you're under 18 sit down if you don't want to be up here sit down <laughs> and then what happens is that people then come onto the stage and part of the preparation for the show is then checking to see how suggestible people are and there's a number of ways that you can actually do that people who are going to be less suggestible are then sent back into the audience. People who are more suggestible uh, and are going to think it's great fun to be up there uh, behaving like a guinea pig or a chook or whatever, they then have the opportunity to go on stage. The truth is with hypnotherapy is that you are always in control. If you want a fun moment, go and have a bit of a look at the Mythbusters program where they try and break the myth about hypnotherapy and they take turns in being hypnotized and then seeing how much self-control they actually retain and in each of these cases the hypnotherapist is unable to control them. This program was actually really interesting because what they then did is that they then hypnotized a producer and not very ethically uh, they actually planted a suggestion or attempted to plant a suggestion with that producer to get her to actually slap one of the hosts uh, when she heard a code word. She was deeply in trance and deeply in trance she actually answered the hypnotherapist when the hypnotherapist tried to plant the suggestion and said I won't do that because that is against my ethics. You are always in control. 
Next question. Uh, I know someone who does Reiki and I don't understand it. I have bad asthma and she offered me a Reiki session. When she put her hands on me, I felt nothing. My asthma was the same. Was I getting nothing? When people get results from it, could it just be a placebo effect? This is an excellent question. I think it's really important when you go for any sort of therapy that you trust your instincts, you ask really good questions, observe the outcome of the therapy. There are at the moment a whole range of treatments which are labelled as Reiki, which can be very, very different. So it's a bit like saying that, uh, you know, an apple is the same as a banana. It's all fruit, but they're quite, quite different. And of course, some people are allergic to pineapples. So this is the thing. Pay attention to your instincts and observe the results. Unfortunately, uh, Reiki is a an unregistered um, industry, unregulated. And what this means is that there are scam artists. There are people who do take advantage. And the thing that makes me really cross is that there are people who have not been taught properly. And so sometimes when people say, I felt nothing, was I getting nothing? The sad answer is that that's correct. You were getting nothing. Your other question, uh, and I love scientific um, questions and I love little science experiments, could any result from a Reiki session actually be a placebo effect? And this is correct. Uh, a placebo is when you actually give somebody a fake uh, medication or a fake service and people feel better and actually get results out of it. And so sometimes people will say, well, that will make that treatment illegitimate. It's not effective. It's pretty pointless. And where we have scientific trials and research, if something proves itself to be only a placebo effect, well, of course, we don't actually recommend that. There has been some recent uh, suggestions lately that where placebo can be helpful, perhaps this is something that we actually legitimately do. Uh, so this is a conversation that's actually happening in the medical fields at the moment. I received a really interesting question the other day that I'd like to answer for all of you. I can't meditate, but I'd like to. My mind is so busy. As soon as I sit down quietly, I can't stop thinking. I know lots of people who do mindfulness and meditation, and they seem to get lots out of it. But I can't do it. What am I missing? Can you give me some tips, or should I just give up? This is a really common question that I get asked all the time. Um, people can be quite upset with the fact that they've been trying to meditate and it's just not working for them. Um, the first thing I'd say is that there are many different forms of meditation. Some things are going to suit you beautifully and other things are just not going to work at all. Some people really love the mindfulness. That is their thing. Some people love walking meditations. Uh, transcendental meditation is just perfect for some people. Others like to empty their mind and sit in the, the stillness. Uh, and others of us need to do the contemplative meditation, which has more of a, a psychotherapeutic uh, angle to it. So that's the first thing. It can take quite some time to actually work out which one of these is actually suitable to you. 
If you can find that that practice, that form of meditation that really suits you, it can be incredibly beneficial for your mind and your body. Uh, It's recommended that we have 20 minutes a day of deep peace and relaxation. Now, for some people, that's going to be gardening. For other people, it will be surfing. So this is the thing. We are all absolutely unique human beings. It's just working out how it's actually going to work for you. I'd actually never recommend anybody give up (laughs) just because of the benefits like I've actually just told you. But yeah, it can be frustrating getting to that point. Our personalities and our ego, and we were talking how deeply protective that can be. Um, And so the ego or the personality, sometimes it's actually termed the left brain, is incredibly well developed in the white Western culture through our schools and our universities. And this is the bit that tends to chatter on and get in the way when we're actually trying to meditate. The other part of the brain, again, sometimes called the right brain, the intuitive brain, uh, some people refer to inner wisdom, the deeper consciousness. This bit is also there. It's just not as noisy as the other part of the mind. And this is the bit we want to tap into and access with meditation. There are a couple of little tricks that you can do to trick your, your left brain into being calmer and quieter. Uh, one way is to envisage a fountain with lots of bubbles. And every thought is a bubble. Blow as many as you can. And just like uh, a bag of popcorn in the microwave, eventually it stops popping and then you can get onto your meditation. Another way to do it is actually to tell that part of your mind to actually take notes. You can analyse later. Take notes. Thank you very much. And when it's being really noisy, um, I quite often will trick that part of my brain and say, we're just playing imagination games over here. Uh, It's all pretend and it's all imagination. Imagination is an excellent bridge to that deeper consciousness. And of course, uh, my personality usually responds with, well, of course, if it's all BS, I'm going to go sit in the corner and do other things. And I go, great. And then I can get on with my meditation. So I hope those tips help you with your meditation. Don't give up uh, and keep looking around for what suits you. The Soulful Living Program is a series of transformational workshops where people identify their life purpose, connect their inner wisdom, and develop both practical and spiritual gifts. Graduates are grounded, resilient, and tap into their inner peace and joy at will. I suffer from anxiety, or more accurately, I allow anxiety to rule my life. I found Anne Marie's workshops extremely helpful. I discovered and learned tools to become self-managing. I completed Reiki 1 in mid to late 2017. At the time, I was lost, unsure of myself, and I knew that I needed something, but I didn't know what it was. So I called Anne-Marie and my journey started there with Reiki 1. A year later, I was back in Anne-Marie's office, learning Reiki 2. Learning Reiki with Anne-Marie has been life-changing in more ways than I can describe. I have learnt to trust my intuition, my body, and the messages around me. I have learned about surrendering and acceptance, and I have learned about compassion, love, kindness, creativity, and living true to myself. Both Reiki and Anne-Marie have been instrumental in helping my partner and I gain a better sense of ourselves and our relationship, and it has also helped us connect with our son. Reiki is the gift that keeps on giving, and I couldn't imagine a better teacher than Anne-Marie. She is kind, loving, patient, and mysteriously in tune with the energy surrounding her. 
She is one of those rare souls who makes you feel instantly safe and comfortable. She is soft and gentle, but also has a fierceness and a strength to her. And she shares her knowledge freely. And for that, I am so grateful. I would and often do recommend Anne-Marie to people I know, because I know that regardless of the situation, she will have a way to help. There's an information session for the Certificate of Soulful Living on the 23rd of January 2019. Classes begin on the 4th of February, and just be aware, we only have two intakes a year. So find out more at annemariemaglasson.com and links will be in the show notes. I want to thank everyone who helped launch the Soul Therapist podcast. Your requests for spiritual mentoring and storytelling have created something really special. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please share with a friend or two. Don't forget to subscribe. And I love reading the comments on iTunes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.